Welcome to another edition of Focus on the Kingdom. This is Anthony Buzzard inviting you again to continue with us in our investigation of Jesus' favorite topic, the gospel about the kingdom of God. We've been describing the kingdom as Jesus would have meant it in his first century Palestinian Jewish environment. Jesus, we have to remember, was a Jew who spoke to Jews in language which they understood. When he announced the kingdom of God as the heart of his gospel, he was not playing verbal games with his audience. The kingdom of God was a well-known phrase in first century Palestinian Judaism. Jesus invited people to believe in the good news of the kingdom coming. Jesus said the kingdom was near. He did not say the kingdom had arrived, that it was here, but that it was on the horizon and it was the great fact of the future challenging every human individual in the present. The choice laid before mankind, Jesus said, was either to be ushered into the kingdom as the wheat into the barn at the harvest, or to be excluded irrevocably from the kingdom and to be destroyed like the chaff which is blown away in the wind. These two destinies were laid before people by John the Baptist and by Jesus, and in fact by the apostles who followed Jesus in the preaching of the same gospel of the kingdom. Let me present you with the very plain evidence for the facts that I've just been outlining. In Matthew chapter 3, we have the account of the introductory ministry of John the Baptist, who of course was the forerunner of Jesus Christ himself. In Matthew chapter 3, verse 2, John opened his ministry by saying, Repent, because the kingdom of God, or kingdom of heaven, is at hand. And so repentance, you see, is based upon a turning away from our erroneous ideas, our false lifestyles, our practices which are contrary to the will of God, and turning towards belief in the coming kingdom. The kingdom of heaven, which as John the Baptist and Jesus after him said, is at hand. It's important to notice that John and Jesus did not say the kingdom had arrived, but that it was on the horizon and it faces every individual in the present because we have a short lifetime in which to prepare for that great event of the future, the coming of the kingdom of God at Jesus' second coming in power and glory. And so John the Baptist opens his Christian mission with the grand declaration that the kingdom of heaven is approaching. Now what he meant by that near approach of the kingdom is described a few verses later. In Matthew 3, verse 2, we have the opening declaration of John about the approach of the kingdom of God. But in verse 7, we read that when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, Generation of vipers, who has warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Immediately then we see that one element in the promise of the coming of the kingdom is the wrath of God. In other words, the day of judgment is what John meant by the coming of the kingdom for which we are to be prepared. And down in verse 10, John goes on as follows, Now also the axe is laid at the root of the trees, and so every tree which does not bring forth good fruit is to be hewn down and cast into the fire. That's the wrath to come, now described as fire here. And in verse 12 he speaks of the Messiah, Jesus, whose fan is in his hand, and he's going to thoroughly purge his floor and gather 
his wheat into the barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. The kingdom of God message, therefore, is both a promise and a threat, a promise and a promise of good things coming to those who respond to the message of the kingdom of God and reorientate their lives in accordance with the message, who believe in Jesus as the promised Messiah, but a terrible threat of destruction to those who do not respond, who go on their sweet way, ignoring the claims of Jesus and his message about the kingdom of God. Now that is the distilled essence of the Christian gospel. It appears, you will notice, at the very outset of the New Testament documents, in the third chapter of Matthew, there's where the foundation of the Christian faith is laid. It's laid not in the preaching of Paul, which came later, but in the preaching of the gospel of the kingdom, as delivered by John the Baptist and Jesus, and as continued in the work of the apostles, both during the life of Jesus and after his death and resurrection and ascension to the right hand of the Father. The very same gospel of the kingdom was still being preached right at the end of the book of Acts. If you look in Acts 28, verse 31, we find Paul there for two years in his own hired house, preaching and witnessing to the kingdom of God and the things concerning Jesus Christ. There is one gospel in the New Testament. It's called the gospel about the kingdom of God and the things concerning Jesus Christ. It's summarized in a beautiful verse in Acts 8, verse 12, where we find a typical response to gospel preaching. When Philip preached the gospel about the kingdom and the name of Jesus, they were getting baptized, both men and women. That is New Testament evangelism. And our listeners may want to compare that pattern of evangelism, that response to the message of the kingdom and the name of Jesus, to compare it with modern versions of evangelism. Are you hearing the gospel of the kingdom clearly preached to you? Or have you been led to believe that the death and resurrection of Jesus is the totality of the gospel? If that were so, the gospel would be cut in half, because Jesus himself preached for three and a half years exclusively about the kingdom of God, and even on those rare occasions when he mentioned his coming death and resurrection, the disciples, who were also preachers of the gospel, did not at that stage even understand or grasp the fact that Jesus was going to die and be raised. The death and resurrection of Jesus, of course, then, is not the whole of the gospel. The gospel's more fundamental element lies in that phrase, kingdom of God. And the kingdom of God message invites you to be a king, an executive ruler with Jesus in the kingdom. That fundamental biblical fact is beautifully summarized for us in Revelation chapter 5, verses 9 and 10. Addressing the risen Lamb, that's to say the risen Jesus Christ now in heaven, angels sing as follows, You are worthy to take the scroll and break the seals of it, because you were sacrificed, and with your blood you bought men for God from every race, language, people, and nation, and you have made them into a line of kings and priests, to serve our God and to rule the world. Revelation 5, verses 9 and 10. As other versions put it, even more plainly, to reign as kings upon the earth. Did you know that that's the destiny of Christians? To rule as co-regents in the future kingdom of God on the earth? This is a very far cry from popular notions about disappearing to heaven. That's almost misleading. 
in view of these plain statements in the book of Revelation and elsewhere throughout the New Testament that Christian destiny has to do with ruling in a new worldwide government on the earth with Jesus when he returns in power and glory. I have to tell you that Christianity is very much involved with politics, but not the politics of present world systems. Jesus was concerned with the politics of the future age, of the age to come to be initiated by his return in power and glory to set up the kingdom. Now, there's a tendency in much Bible study and preaching to try to collapse these plain statements about Christian destiny as co-regents with Jesus in the future kingdom. Some people would like to make Jesus more, quote, religious and less political. And many have tried to think only of a present reign of the church or a reign of the Lord in your heart in order to dissolve the hard political elements in the gospel as Jesus preached it. But that is not a fair way to deal with the Bible. The rulership promised to the believer by Jesus will be granted to him only after he has become victorious through the trials of the present life. The believer will then share the kingdom with Jesus. He's going to be a co-heir, co-inheritor at that time of the kingdom of God. He's going to share the kingdom with Jesus at the future resurrection and not before that time. Just as Jesus gained his position of authority on the Father's throne at his resurrection, so at the resurrection of the faithful of all the ages in the future, those saints will become rulers with Jesus in the kingdom of God on the earth. Blessed are the meek, Jesus said. They're going to have the earth as their inheritance. Matthew 5 and verse 5. And I should add, of course, that the word saints in the Bible does not refer to a special class of super-Christians. Far from it, every true believer in the Bible is designated a saint. Now, Jesus had spoken often of this future rule of the saints with himself in the kingdom. At the Last Supper, you remember, Jesus expressed his intention to share rulership of the kingdom with his disciples in the future. He assured them of a place of honor as ministers of state in a new worldwide government. This, in fact, was the essential point of the new covenant. Listen to these famous words of Jesus in Luke 22, verses 28 to 30. Addressing his disciples, he said, You are the ones who have stood by me in my trials, and just as my Father has covenanted a kingdom to me, I covenant with you the right to eat and drink with me in my kingdom, and you're going to sit on thrones governing the twelve tribes of Israel. Luke 22, 28 to 30. Jesus obviously envisaged a time coming when the twelve tribes now scattered across the world will be regathered in the land of Palestine, just as the prophets had promised and at that time the apostles, along with Jesus, would be supervising a new world system, a new revolutionary worldwide government known as the kingdom of God. And this kingdom had been covenanted with Jesus by God his Father. That covenant, I may say, is the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant by which God had given to Abraham the promise of the world the gospel, as you remember from Galatians 3, verse 8, had been preached in advance to Abraham. And that gospel involved the promise, the land promise, to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob uh, for all time in perpetuity. 
that land promise becomes the covenanted promise of the kingdom of God in the language of Jesus. Blessed are the meek, they're going to inherit the earth. They're going to have the kingdom as their inheritance. Land and the earth and the kingdom all refer to the territory that will be supervised by Jesus and his faithful when Jesus returns in power and glory to take up the reins of government and to reorder the affairs of our earth on a sane and sound basis, there'll be an era of incredible prosperity and peace across this world. Even nature will reflect the harmony that at that time will exist amongst nations. The lion and the lamb will graze together, the bear and the goat and so on, and even poisonous snakes will become harmless. And as we read in many passages of the Old Testament, notably in Isaiah chapter 11, the earth will be filled with the knowledge of God to the extent that the waters cover the sea. Now, Jesus had repeated this promise of political leadership and executive position in the kingdom on an earlier occasion. Jesus had taken special note of the time when the messianic government would come into power. I'm reading now from Matthew chapter 19 and verse 28. Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you that you who have followed me in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you also will sit upon twelve thrones to govern the twelve tribes of Israel. If this material on the gospel of the kingdom of God is of special interest to you or new to you, we invite you to request from us our book on the kingdom of God, also a booklet entitled, What Happens When We Die? We'd be pleased to send this to you for your personal Bible study at home. Meanwhile, join us again as we continue with our investigation of Jesus' favorite topic, the gospel about the kingdom of God.